This is an ABC podcast. China's oppression of the Uyghur people appears to be expanding, with intellectuals reportedly the latest group to be targeted in a mass government crackdown. At least 100 Uyghur academics are believed to have been sent to the camps as part of what the UN estimates is the forced detention of at least one million of the mostly Muslim minority group. China's government claims the camps are for vocational training and the re-education of extremists. But reports from inside tell a very different story. The Chinese government is rounding up and interning large numbers of Uyghurs. The Muslim ethnic group from the western Chinese province of Xinjiang. For decades there have been tensions between the Uyghurs and the Chinese. And there have been moments when this tension has led to violence. But what's happening in Xinjiang today is something quite different. So why are the Uyghurs being interned? Are they connected with terrorism? Or is their only crime being ethnically and culturally different to the Chinese? Hello, I'm Annabelle Quince and this is Rear Vision on RN. Like so many stories we tackle here on Rear Vision, the story of the Uyghurs of Xinjiang starts with geography. The region of Xinjiang sits on the crossroads between China and Central Asia and according to Omar Kanet, chairman of the Executive Committee of the World Uyghur Congress, it's a unique and stunningly beautiful place. It is a beautiful, beautiful land located at the northwest part of China. It's a part of the Central Asia. Uyghurs are the indigenous people of the region, and they have been living there for thousands of years, and they call their homeland East Turkestan. Uyghurs are a Turkic Muslim people, so they don't have anything to do culturally, linguistically with the Han Chinese. They belong to Central Asia. They have close cultural, linguistic and relationship with the people in Central Asia like Uzbeks, Kazakh, Kyrgyz and others. And this is a very rich land with enormous resources like oil, natural gas, gold and all kinds of rare minerals. The Uyghurs today are the people who've been the demographic majority of this territory called Xinjiang in China's northwest. And that's divided geographically into a zone of steppe grassland in the north, which has tended to be home to a nomadic population, and then a community of settled oases in the south. And the Uyghurs are the settled inhabitants of this region. So historically, the south of Xinjiang has been the, the homeland for them. David Brophy, is a senior lecturer in modern Chinese history at the University of Sydney and the author of Uyghur Nation. In terms of the Uyghurs today, there are a couple of key moments. The first is the arrival of a people speaking the Turkic languages. Today, most of Xinjiang and the rest of Central Asia to its west, the people there speak a language that belongs to the Turkic language family, and Uyghur is one of them. So, in a certain sense, they consider themselves Turks on that basis, as well as Uyghurs. A lot of people are under the misconception that the, the Turkic languages originate in Turkey. But in fact, Turkey is really the only the final stop on this history of migration from Central Asia. So as far as we can ascertain, this language family has its original homeland in what's now Mongolia. 
And then beginning in the 6th century, we started to get waves of migration bringing people out of the steppe and down into the Middle East. And gradually this large space in central Eurasia became occupied by people speaking languages that belong to this widely dispersed language family, the, the Turkic language family. Uh, and then the, the second important event is the conversion of this region to Islam, which took place about a thousand years ago. And so today, if you had to ask, you know, some of the chief identifying features of Uyghur identity, then that Turkic-speaking Muslim identity would be high on the list. So when does this region of Xinjiang fall under the orbit of China? Mm. Well, there are a couple of moments in imperial Chinese history where Chinese dynasties would have claimed to exert some kind of sovereignty in this territory. But really, if we're looking at it from the vantage point of today, then the key moment is in the middle of the 18th century when the, the Qing dynasty, the last dynasty, which is a dynasty ruled by the Manchu, they engage in a series of military campaigns throughout the 18th century that, that dramatically expand the boundaries of what is the, the Qing empire, including the conquest of, of Xinjiang in the 1750s. But according to Nick Holdstock, the author of China's Forgotten People, Xinjiang, Terror and the Chinese State, the Qing never fully controlled the part of Xinjiang occupied by the Uyghurs. It's really only under the Qing dynasty that the region we now call Xinjiang becomes incorporated into a wider Chinese state and became incorporated in a very sort of piecemeal way. Originally, really, it was the northern part of Xinjiang that became incorporated into the Qing dynasty. But the southern part of that region, which is what many people think of as the Uyghur homeland, if you like, that really wasn't incorporated into the Chinese state till much later, 19th century, really. For um, the first century or so, the Qing exercised a very hands-off form of rule. In fact, they actually took measures to prevent its integration with the Chinese interior. So, for example, they limited the possibility for Chinese to, to emigrate to Xinjiang. Local administration was basically in the hands of local notable families, particularly families who'd switched sides during the conquest, made a contribution to the incoming Qing army and were rewarded for that by being granted various titles, various symbols of imperial favour. And there was a sort of a Muslim aristocracy created within the Qing dynasty up until the middle of the 19th century. That's more or less what the prevailing system was. The control was not permanent. Sometimes they came and invaded the region and then there was uprising and then the people of East Turkestan got their independence back and then uh, Chinese re-entered the region and renamed the region as Xinjiang New Territory. And then in 1933, there was an uprising against the Chinese rule, and there was a East Turkestan Republic established, but it was a short-lived republic. This republic was crushed. Then in 1944, there was another rebellion against the Chinese rule, and the East Turkestan and the Uyghurs gained their independence again. But this republic was also crushed in cooperation between Mao and Stalin. And then the region fall completely under the Chinese communist government's control. But of course, this rebellions, uprisings, unrest continued. The Uyghurs have never accepted the Chinese rule in the region. 
it's not really until the People's Republic of China is founded in 1949 that the whole of that region becomes fully part of a unified Chinese state. And were Uyghurs at that point looking to China or did they tend to look west to what we know as sort of Turkmenistan, Kazakhstan, that kind of region? Well, I think that perhaps Uyghurs in the east of Xinjiang, around sort of Turpan, around there, may have sort of had some more connection to China because they were geographically closer. But people in Kashgar, in the extreme southwest of Xinjiang, were more orientated towards the Ottoman idea and the intellectual ideas that were coming through there. Whereas people in the northwest of Xinjiang, around Yiming, they were maybe more oriented towards Central Asian politics, Russian politics. This really was the absolute sort of periphery of the Qing Empire. As such, they were heavily influenced by non-Chinese ideas. And one of those sources of non-Chinese ideas came from the Soviet Union and their ideas around ethnic identity and classification. Often resistance to Chinese authorities could be mobilised around ideas of being Muslim, being Turk. I think why it emerged the way it did was to a large extent thanks to the Russian Revolution and the new social order that the Soviets created in Russian Central Asia. And this was one in which categories of nationality became particularly important. The Soviets went to great lengths to try to classify the population along national lines. And in doing so, they were often approaching people who didn't necessarily have a very strong sense of national identity at the point where they're being asked about this. And so within the bureaucracy as well, belonging to one of these national categories was it was the way that you negotiated the system. So we start to see in the early 1920s after the Russian Revolution in places like Tashkent, the capital of Uzbekistan, Almaty in, in Kazakhstan, exiles from Xinjiang who have become excited by the revolution and the opportunities that it presents, they start to use this term Uyghur as a, as a rallying point for their community. And in some cases, it's really more the name of an organisation rather than the name of a, of a national group. But that serves to popularise this concept. Then in the 1930s, you know, because the Soviet influence on Xinjiang was so great at that particular point in time, I mean, in fact, Xinjiang was, to a large extent, it can be thought of as a Soviet satellite, the authorities in Xinjiang uh, borrowed the Soviet categories of nationality and started to apply them. There are political networks that are spreading this idea among the community across the border, but there's also an administrative borrowing that's taking place between Soviet Union and China. October the 1st, 1949 was the day the People's Republic of China, the world's most populous country, was proclaimed a communist state, and Mao took over the reins of government. For the People's Republic of China, in theory, this category of Uyghur national identity doesn't present any problems. The, the sticking point or the problem was not so much with the category itself, but what it implied politically. Because in the Soviet Union, if you are a recognised nationality of significant size, the way the Uyghurs were, then you would be entitled, say, to your own national republic, say, along the lines of, you know, the Republic of Uzbekistan or Kazakhstan, these neighbouring countries. A lot of Uyghurs who were very familiar with the Soviet model, after the Chinese Revolution and the, the arrival of the Chinese communists in Xinjiang, 
they tended to expect or at least hope for something as robust as what they saw across the border. And of course, China had quite a different approach. They had a much more centralizing approach to nationality. There was not going to be a system of republics along the lines of the Soviet Union. At best, you would end up as an autonomous region within the People's Republic. And that is what the Uyghurs were granted in 1955. The Chinese government in 1955 gave autonomous status for the region and called the region the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. And Chinese authorities at the time promised the Uyghurs basic human rights and they will have a saying in the rule of the region and they will control all the resources of the region. But was on the paper, they never kept their promises. Immediately after the entering of the communist troops, they began systematically to bring Han Chinese from mainland China to East Turkestan in order to change the demographics of the region and uh, began to implement policies which intended to assimilate the Uyghur people, destroy their culture, their language, their tradition. You're listening to Rear Vision on RN. I'm Annabelle Quince. In this program, we're tracing the story of the Uyghurs, the Muslim people of Xinjiang. After the Chinese took control of Xinjiang, there was a rapid increase in the number of Han Chinese who immigrated into the region. 49 is the beginning of a demographic shift in Xinjiang. And before then, the Han Chinese were something like about 5 or 6% of the people in that region. From 49 onwards, there is a concerted attempt to move not just soldiers into Xinjiang from the rest of China, but also agricultural colonist settlers, if you like. So allied with the, the imposition of communist ideology, there is this sort of physical demographic shift as well. And although it seems that in the early 50s, the Communist Party had a sense that they wanted to move maybe a little more slowly in Xinjiang than they were doing elsewhere, you know, there was a sort of degree of caution about applying policies, you know, essentially trying to work out, I think, the situation. And I think there was genuine debate within, within the Communist Party at that point about what this new region should be like. After the mid-50s, as you get into the 60s, then Xinjiang becomes absolutely part of national policies like the Great Leap Forward and then later the Cultural Revolution. So what percentage of Xinjiang were Uyghurs in 1949 when the Chinese arrived and how quickly did that change? The population, as far as we can tell, around about 80% Uyghur. vast majority of the population were Uyghur. Only about 5 or 6% were Chinese. So the Chinese presence was minimal. There was no notion of the Chinese as any kind of demographic threat to the Uyghur claim on Xinjiang. But gradually this did start to change. So by the 1980s, you've reached a situation where the Chinese population has gone from roughly 6% to about 40%. In terms of the number of Chinese that started to move into Xinjiang, especially in the sort of 60s and 70s, what impact did that have on the land and resources there? Were, were Uyghurs given the same access to resources that they'd had before? No, of course, uh, because after the communists came, first thing they do was the land reform. And they took all the land from the Uyghurs and began to distribute this land to the 
newcomers, Han Chinese, who have been coming from the mainland China, moving from mainland China to East Turkestan. One of the things it meant was that they didn't get to control access to land and especially to water. Xinjiang is an incredibly arid region, which any kind of agriculture is difficult in that region. So to have a large group of new people coming in, essentially working on state farms and then taking control of the resources made a huge difference to people's lives. I think there were also some positive aspects. I'm sure inf the infrastructure did improve there. And there were probably were some improvements in, in healthcare as well and education. Not everything that, that happened after the communists took over in Xinjiang was terrible. But nonetheless, no one in the region asked the communists to come in and do these things. According to Omar Kanat, there were moments of relative peace and freedom for the Uyghurs under Chinese rule, especially during the 1980s, during the reforms of Deng Xiaoping. Between 1980 and until the 86, there was a time of relative freedom for the Uyghurs. The Uyghurs were able to travel to to other countries, very limited, of course, for example, to Saudi Arabia, to Hajj. And the, the Chinese government at the time eased the restrictions on religious freedom between 1980 until 1988, 1989. And there was a relatively cultural freedom for Uyghur people. At this period, a lot of books about the Uyghur culture, about Uyghur history were published in East Turkestan. But after the, especially after the 1989 Tiananmen massacre, Chinese government started to tight the control in East Turkestan and also started to restrict again the religious and cultural freedom in the region. The watershed is really sort of around 89-1991, where two major things happened that affected governance, not just in Xinjiang, but also in China. One is, is Tiananmen Square. You know, if China had been moving in a slightly more permissive direction, Tiananmen was absolutely sort of the end of anything like that. And after that, the whole country, everything, including Xinjiang, really sort of became much more authoritarian. And Xinjiang was not exempt from that at all. Any sign of protest, whether you're Uyghur, Han, whatever the region, had to be stamped out immediately. And then when you have the breakup of the Soviet Union, that sends quite a kind of a clear message to the Communist Party that if they don't keep a sort of an iron fist on that region, then they too could have a sort of a breakaway republic as well. So these two things together definitely lead to a much more concerted effort to keep very firm control on the region. In parallel with that, in the 90s, China's economy was evolving more and the state started letting people go from jobs that people had thought they had for life. And this was also true in Xinjiang. So, so in Xinjiang, there was also a lot more unemployment, especially amongst Uyghurs in the 90s and onwards as well. And in Xinjiang, many of the state-owned companies and organizations, especially in, involved in resource extraction, don't really employ Uyghurs for various reasons. And if you like, the economic opportunities for Uyghurs definitely started narrowing from the 90s on, which coupled with the colder political climate meant that, if you like, there's more pressure on the situation. In Chinese, Xinjiang means new frontier. But for many, this is eastern Turkestan, one of the ancient lands of the Silk Road. 
Though Beijing has long claimed its many ethnic groups live together in harmony, the largest of the Muslim people in the province, the Uyghurs, are now asserting their identity and challenging the Chinese government. 1997 unrest in Gulja because there was a peaceful demonstration which turned to a bloody incident. Chinese government restricted again the Uyghur travel of the Uyghurs to Central Asia. This was, I think, the turning point in Chinese policy in the region because after that, following this unrest, Chinese government arrested, detained thousands, tens of thousands of people for being involving in this unrest although they have not been any part of this unrest. It happened in Gulja, and then Chinese government began to a, a strike hard campaign, a mass arrest all over East Turkestan, claiming that the people were involved in the Gulja incident. Four years later, the attacks of September 11 occurred. What impact did they have on the way the Chinese government viewed the Uyghurs and their claim for more autonomy? The simplest answer to that is that before 9-11, the Chinese government was, was very categorical and very clear that they did not have a terrorism problem in Xinjiang. And after 9-11, about three or four months later, they, they decided they did have a terrorism problem in Xinjiang. Essentially, they chose to rebrand the dissent that existed in Xinjiang as terrorism in the hope that it would then give them carte blanche to impose whatever policies they liked, which arguably kind of worked. As part of this, they declared that they had been fighting an organization called the East Turkestan Islamic Movement and other organizations like that, they said, which they claimed were linked to al-Qaeda and the Taliban. And although some Western security experts decided that this was absolutely true, most scholars eventually made it quite clear that most of these groups barely existed at all, and that the, the threat was therefore vastly exaggerated. But arguably the damage had been done. The terrorism claim is quite hard to put back in the box, as it were, once you let it out. And really since then, the, the Chinese government has continued to claim that it's fighting a terrorist, a radical Islamist terrorist threat in Xinjiang, which essentially they use to justify pretty much anything they want. Police in Beijing are searching for two men of Uyghur origin after an apparent suicide attack on Tiananmen Square on Monday. Urumqi city in the restive region of Xinjiang is quiet, although the underlying tension between ethnic Uyghurs and Han Chinese appears to be simmering just beneath the surface. And was there any evidence? I mean, because clearly there were incidents. I mean, perhaps not coordinated and sometimes not only in Xinjiang, where you had Uyghurs who were doing violent things against Han Chinese. There were definitely incidents of inter-ethnic violence. But in most cases, the religious element was not a clear motivation. Some of these incidents may have had some religious elements. You know, people may occasionally have had a banner or something like that. But if you can speak of jihadist branding for an incident in which the perpetrators of an incident frame it in those terms, then there was, wasn't very much of that going on. Nor was there, for virtually all the incidents, any radical Islamist group actually claiming responsibility. You can't completely rule out that there are some religious elements in some of these incidents. But 
again, I think generally the causes are more economic and cultural rather than religious for these incidents. I just want to say that there have not been a organized terrorist group in East Turkestan or movement in East Turkestan. There were isolated attacks carried out by the individuals, but there have not been an organized terror group in East Turkestan. Xinjiang, the nation's largest province, and according to some, the world's largest open prison. Xinjiang is the homeland of the Uyghurs. China's rulers have struggled to control the region and its people for two millennia. Surveillance technology is the new weapon in their campaign. The big change happened in 2016. Josh Chin, the China correspondent for the Wall Street Journal. And that was when a new Communist Party secretary, Chen Chuanguo, was transferred from Tibet. And in Tibet, he had been responsible for clamping down on this series of self-immolation protests that had, that had gotten a lot of news. And, and he had developed these innovative policing techniques that he imported into Xinjiang. And one of these is something known as a convenience police station, which is a basically sort of very cheaply, quickly built police station that you can put every block or two. And, and so that's what he did in, in Uyghur neighborhoods as he built these police stations. And these police stations are then connected to pervasive surveillance cameras and systems. And they enable police to, to react sort of within, you know, under a minute to any sort of event, any kind of incident happening. And so there are basically now police everywhere in Uyghur neighborhoods. Then there are also security gates in almost every public venue. If you want to go to a, a bank, a hotel, a market, even residential compounds, you have security gates where you have to go through if you're Uyghur and scan your ID card and then have your face scanned and matched your ID card. So that basically people are sort of tracked wherever they go if they're Uyghur. Han Chinese tend to get waved through the security gates. Well, despite Beijing's denials, there has been growing evidence of a mass campaign of repression by the Chinese government against the Muslim Uyghurs of Xinjiang province. And tonight we can bring you a rare account from inside one of what some are calling the concentration camps the Chinese government is running where a million or more Uyghurs are being subjected to brainwashing and re-education. You have what, what some people are calling a gulag of internment camps that have been built across the region. And there's, there's a sort of range. Some of them kind of look like schools or are converted schools. Others are basically prisons, 20 feet high walls topped with razor wire and guard towers. And Uyghurs who are caught up in the surveillance system and then determined to be threatening are being sent to these internment camps where they are sort of subjected to some people call brainwashing. They're basically told to give up their belief in Islam, to have faith in the Communist Party. They're made to study Mandarin, proclaim their loyalty to, to Xi Jinping and, and, and his ideas. And some of them have been kept there for a year and a half, two years already, uh, without criminal charge. These camp systems are being held over Uyghurs who, are, who have not been sent to them as a, as a constant threat. 
that. If you say the wrong thing, you'll, you'll end up in a camp. After a hail of criticism over the Trump administration's separation of immigrant families, a similar but seemingly more sinister version is happening at the hands of Chinese authorities. But this doesn't involve immigrants, it involves citizens. The Chinese government is reportedly putting children of the mostly Muslim Uyghur population into orphanages to cleanse them of their language, their culture and even their allegiance to family. This repressive policy will make the people more radical. But the most frightening thing is separation of the families. The parents are in these camps and their children are being taken by the Chinese authorities to the state orphanages in mainland China. And identity of many thousands, thousands of the Uyghur children have been changed. Even if their parents come out alive from these camps, they may not be able to see their children. I think at this point, the options for most Uyghurs in Xinjiang, there are virtually no options for them. Anything that they do can be regarded as a suspicious behavior that then leads them to be taken to a camp. I wouldn't say that they're acquiescing, but I think they have very few options at this point. Nick Holstock, journalist and author of China's Forgotten People. My other guests, Joss Chin, China correspondent for the Wall Street Journal. David Brophy, senior lecturer in modern Chinese history at the University of Sydney. And Omar Kanat, chairman of the executive committee of the World Uyghur Congress. The sound engineer is Isabella Tropiano. I'm Annabelle Quince, and this is Rear Vision on RN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.